Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Brian Arthur. Brian's a leading economist and complexity thinker. He's best known for his pioneering work on positive feedbacks and increasing returns in the economy, i.e. what happens when products that gain market share find it easier to gain further market share and the role of these network effects in locking markets into the domination of a single player, you know, things like Microsoft, Windows, Facebook, etc. Brian was one of the dudes that first saw that as a phenomena and explained it from an economics perspective. Brian's also one of the pioneers of the science of complexity, the science of how patterns and structures self-organize and emerge. He's a founding member of the Founders Society of the Santa Fe Institute in 1988, ran its first research program. I didn't know that, Brian. That was interesting. I looked up your background. And he helped found the Santa Fe Institute's work on complexity economics. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And you're a very old friend, Jim, I should say at the outset. Thank you. Yeah, indeed. When I first came out to the Santa Fe Institute as a researcher back in 2002, you and I were actually office mates for a while. Really? That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you were traveling most of the time, so I mostly had an office myself, which was handy. But, you know, sometimes we'd both be in the office at the same time. We had a few conversations from time to time. So, yeah, we go, go way back. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Delighted. And well, Brian works in lots of interesting areas, today we're going to talk mostly about his book, The Nature of Technology, What It Is and How It Evolves. Now, this is a book that's much talked about, but perhaps not read as much as it should be. So I'm going to encourage my listeners, if you find today's talk interesting, get the book. It's very readable, full of lots of good stories, as well as some very deep ideas. So first, one of the things you discuss early in the book is that, oddly enough, despite the importance of technology in our world, it isn't really a rich academic field, i.e. theories of technology are not a rich academic field, unlike, say, the history and philosophy of science, where there's lots of good mud pie fights going on all the time. Why do you think that is? It's the oddest thing. I think there's just a few vague ideas about technology. One is that Somewhere across the way, maybe on campus, in the engineering department, people are thinking about technology deeply. Turns out mostly they're not. Engineers, uh, I was told by other engineers, are not interested in that much in thinking about the foundations of technology. There's another reason as well, and that's technology is viewed as a kind of ugly sister of a lesser sibling to science. Science is glory. Science creates this. Science manages that. Science puts men on the moon, not engineers, <laughs> etc. And I think that technology's suffered a lot of bad rap. We blame technology for all kinds of things, and we glorify science equally for all kinds of things. 
Um, so one of the I was trained as an engineer, and I thought I wanted to really take a good hard look at technology. Hence the book. Yeah, it's really very very interesting. And you're right. I looked around a little, did some side research, and there's still not all that much, you know, about real theories of technology and how it has come to be. We did recently have on our show Matt Ridley talked about his new book, How Innovation Works. This hit on some of the things, but frankly, it was more a pop history of innovation, et cetera, with a little bit of theory. But one thing I I would like to ask you about is he did make the distinction, same one that's often made at the Santa Fe Institute, the distinction between invention and innovation, where invention is something, you know, a primary new thing, say, for instance, discovering that moving magnetic fields can generate electricity. Versus an innovation, the application of something like that kind of discovery to the development of electric dynamos for producing electricity in bulk. You don't use that exact distinction. Any particular reason why? I find that when I got into seriously looking at technology, there were a lot of concepts uh, invention, innovation, things like that, words that were bandied about, and each with a kind of penumbra of meanings and huge amount of vagueness, um, I got a bit tired of trying to wrestle with those. So I just decided I'd strip everything down, only mention innovation if it was needed. That distinction you mentioned, by the way, goes back to Schumpeter, Josef Schumpeter, about 100 years ago or more. He was fascinated by invention, but he thought the real news was innovation when an invention enters the economy and gets used. So I decided I wasn't going to write a pop book about innovation, and I wasn't going to worship geniuses and people upstairs in the attic, you know, inventing things. I wanted to look at reality. So I read a lot of lab books, and I talked to people And I did a lot of homework on this. I was trying to look at reality and uh, bring back whatever news I could from what's still very much a frontier field. Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, at least what I took away, what you substituted instead is actually something very interesting. Is you start at the base with phenomena, that the capture of phenomena, meaning sort of things from the world of physics is your base. And it's you know interesting. I've recently been doing some research on where hydrogen fits in the carbon neutral economy. During the same time, I was rereading your book for this podcast. And as it turns out, one of the core phenomena that's involved in hydrogen as part of the you know, carbon neutral economy is how electrolysis is done, how water is split into hydrogen and oxygen to capture the hydrogen. Now, it turns out There's four different ways that this catalysis can be done, and each one harnesses a different physical phenomena. So, you know, your use of phenomena as sort of the base to build from, frankly, I probably wouldn't have thought of it quite that way if I hadn't been reading the book at the same time. So maybe talk us through a little bit about what you mean by phenomena and what it means to, you know, sort of capture or encapsulate it. Sure. I must say I had a real blast writing this book. I thought it would be two years to write. I started, oh, around 1997, and the book actually took 12 years to write, and that was because, as I 
started to look at individual technologies, I discovered I knew quite a bit. I had a top-class engineering degree, and I knew a lot about technology, but I wanted to know very well about two dozen different technologies. I mean, being reasonably expert in at least a dozen of those and the history of them and who had done what. And as I started to look into different technologies, not just casually, but very, very deeply and read and read and read several books and plunge into them and look at research notebooks and stuff, I began to realize that they all had this common base. They were all based upon one phenomenon or more usually several. I got fascinated by things like dendrochronology, basically the art of dating things, uh, dating pieces of wood like lintels uh, archaeologically by looking at the tree rings. And uh, tree rings have a pattern year by year. If it's a wet year, the pattern's different from if it's a dry year as the rings grow out. So you can nail down when a tree was felled uh, to be used in some archaeological site maybe 2,000 years ago uh, to the exact year pretty much. I got fascinated by this and I discovered that every technology I used was based on some phenomenon and uh, usually funny enough many phenomena <laughs> so i poetically began to describe technologies as orchestrations of phenomena or programmings of phenomena it's as if you've got all these different phenomena in your toolkit uh, electrical ones um, more uh, ones that are more physical, like in construction systems, and you're reaching into that toolkit to put several of these together to use for a specific purpose. Yeah, and I like the fact you managed to ground that all the way back, you know, one of mankind's earliest technologies, the hand axe, you know, basically a rock with a sharp edge on it. Uh, what's the phenomena? It's two, right? Transfer of momentum and the solid state physics of the materials, right? Exactly. I go, okay, your theory works. You can take it all the way back to the hand act. <laughs> One of the real kicks I had was reading history, and I tried to read um, up-close individual accounts. I started to read about Röntgen, who had discovered X-rays, as you know, accidentally, if I recall, it's around 1895. And he started to experiment with these rays, using Crookes tubes, or now we'd call them essentially cathode ray tubes, by putting wood in between the photographic plate and the emitter, or putting lead in between, he got no image. And then he persuaded his wife to put her hand in between, <laughs> and he got this perfect skeletal picture of her hand, uh, showing her wedding rings and, hey, presto, there was a phenomenon now by which you could look at the internal structure of limbs and see bones and see them very clearly. And within about three months of publicizing that, suddenly people were trying to do that themselves and radiology or x-ray 
systems were born with that uh, one thing. I conjectured one time to an audience that his wife must have died of cancer. It was kind of a maybe a, a rather uh, dark joke. I, I was just, oh, oh, she must have died of cancer. Before I finish the sentence, almost a hand goes up and says, yes, she did. So there's a human story behind all of these inventions. I recently watched a movie about the Curies, right? They both died from radiation-related phenomena. Yep. As did many people in Los Alamos. I remember our mutual friend George Cowan, who started the Santa Fe Institute, George told me at about age 80 with a great chuckle, he says, I'm the only one left alive from the Manhattan Project. He says, I should have been dead 10 times over <laughs> with all the radiation I got, but I survived it. Yeah, yeah it's a probabilistic thing. Well, let's move on to the next part, which I think is you know an interesting insight that you had, which is the relationship to a, an economy and its technologies. You kind of reverse, in some sense, the usual conversation. First of all, uh, um, digging back a little here uh, as trying to get at these ideas, I was taught economics at a graduate, you know, at a PhD level, actually in Berkeley, quite a long time ago. But I don't think the subject has changed, and we were basically told that an economy was a system of exchange, usually with well-formed markets and prices and so on, a modern economy. And uh, the economy created every so often technology. So you'd have little factories and firms possibly making steel. And the next thing would be maybe 1860 and then Somebody comes along with a better process, uh, Bessemer, for example. Now there's Bessemer steel. We can produce better steel in bulk. So the emphasis was always on the economy as a kind of container. And from time to time, it would create new technologies. And you could sort of slide these out of the machine like a a unit in a fancy digital machine and slide in the new technology and the economy would be better off. That's the story we were given. I don't think it's wrong. But I, uh, as I did more and more research, I decided that something different was going on, not quite independently. A fuller picture was this. It's not that the economy creates technologies, it certainly does, but that's not the full story. A much rounder story is that technologies create the economy. And here I would go back to really good economists before the 1870s, like John Stuart Mill, Karl Marx, at least as a good observer of the economy and not that keen on his ideological stance. But these people observed the economy and realized that an economy came out of its means of production. That was the phrase they used. In other words, an economy is built around its technologies. So if you've got water wheels and grain mills, or later on if you've got railways, the economy forms around 
the technologies that are in use. They're the skeleton of the economy, if you like. The brains of it might lie in the market, or and the sinews might be the actions that human beings take, etc. But it's the technologies that give you the economy. And they also bring along with them the era. So we have an era of railroads, an era of electrical machines, uh, an era of canals before the railroads, and so on. I was thinking about that as I was reading it, and I decided, let me play a thought experiment. Suppose we go all the way back, right? Not all the way back, but a long way back to the one of the greatest transitions in human history. Actually, prehistory was the development of settled agriculture, right? And I go, hmm, what's the phenomena that was there? And I said, ah, basically, it was a kind of a folk genetics, right? They didn't call it genetics. They didn't obviously know about genes or they didn't know about DNA. But they somehow or other stumbled into a low-tech technology of selective breeding of plants and animals to allow for high enough yields to make it worthwhile to settle rather than to continue to forage. So I go, hmm, that seems to work. And as you talk about, you know, cultural eras, you know, settled agriculture, we're still in the epoch of settled agriculture, interestingly enough, right? And then I was thinking about some others, you know, the automobile turned into the suburban era, which we're still living in here in the West. So those arguments made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, there's a wonderful economist, uh, economic historian called Carlota Perez. Yes, I've actually had a guest on who was a student of hers, and we talked about her work a fair amount. I'm a big admirer, and she points out that these technologies, or I would call them bodies of technology or domains, these big collections or clusters of technology that bring you electrical systems or chemical systems or later on electronics or railroads. These are clusters of technology. They define new eras and they, over time, the time would be decades, they actually redefine society. And so we've had these clusters coming in all the way from uh, the start of the Industrial Revolution which would be around the 1760s. We had canals coming in. We had uh, water wheels. And then by about the 1820s, steam engines. And then canals were ousted uh, in the 1840s, 1850s by railroads and so on. Each of these, like you're pointing out about suburbia, transforms society. It's remarkable that in the horse and buggy era, you know, where I'm standing here in Silicon Valley, I'm in Palo Alto, it was a string of little towns 120 years ago along one railway line, Menlo Park, Palo Alto, Cupertino, etc. Now we have a conglomeration of those with the automobile suddenly the game changed. We could get from a town to what became the suburbs rapidly and quickly. Gasoline was relatively cheap. We didn't have to get out a horse. We didn't need a chauffeur. We could do it ourselves. So these bodies of technology or clusters of technology 
not only do they create the economy, but when new ones come along, they recreate the economy. And in doing so, they create a new way of being, a new form of society. I think Perez got all this absolutely right. I was greatly influenced by her uh, work. If, if I recall, it's Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, if I remember the title well. Brilliant book. I recommend it very highly to people. And I think that what I would like to emphasize, is a bit of a long answer here, but is that the causality goes from some need, we need to transport goods more easily, then some cluster of technologies, railway locomotives, rails, better steel, and so on, giving us a, a cluster of railroad technology that is used by industries. The industries get transformed by the new cluster of technologies, and that in turn transforms society. But notice that at the back of all of this, technology is driving. It's in the driver's seat. And this is what economists talked about and noticed before 1850, 1860. Sad to say that when analytical economics came along, it, it liked to keep everything constant and static. So technology went out of fashion for theorists and wasn't much talked about. I'll insert this here. I have it later in my notes, but that's a perfect time to you know, get to the Schumpterian perspective and contrast it with the equilibrium economics that somehow became all the fashion in the economics profession. Just for the audience, if you could uh, essentially describe the equilibrium economics that is still taught an awful lot. I you know, took a, a couple of courses, three economics courses when I was an undergraduate, including one from Paul Samuelson himself in a small class of 20 students. And, you know, it's all about equilibrium. And yet it's not. <laughs> yeah, that's an, uh, that's an oh, my God, right there that you were in the same classroom as the great Samuelson. <laughs> If you'd gone to Harvard, you might have encountered Schumpeter. Uh, they weren't that far apart. Yeah, there's an odd thing happened in economics. Um, so let me see if I can encapsulate this fairly quickly. People looking at the economy, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Mill, Marx, uh, you know, line up the usual theorists, they had a very keen idea of the entire interrelation of markets and prices uh, appearing in those markets that gave the players incentives, the producers and the consumers, to save and to produce and all this sort of thing. But they were also aware that none of this was static, that the economy was changing all the time. But around 1870, algebra came in, as a technique or a tool and calculus, and top economists, really good ones, uh, Jevons, uh, Alfred Marshall, and others, started to look at the economy mathematically. It was difficult to do that with having new things coming along. So if you had X, Y, and Z, you'd have to, <laughs> a year later, you could have X, Y, Z, K, L, and M, this didn't suit algebra at all. So economists started to imagine, well, let there be N different types of goods. N is fixed 
and there might be an improvement in making N, but we're not going to talk about really new things. We're not going to talk about changes in structure. We're not going to talk about the economy in non-equilibrium. We're going to nail it to a board like you would with a butterfly and try to figure out how it flies by staring at its wings. I'm being a little bit facetious here. But there was a drive away from looking at the economy as changing and evolving. Let me pause here and just bring this to Schumpeter. Josef Schumpeter, who had grown up in uh, Austria, mostly in Vienna, uh, was fascinated by how an economy formed. And he drank in this equilibrium static framework. He even wrote a book about it in 1906 and presented this with great aplomb to Walrach, who was the chief equilibrium theorist at the time. He was getting old, so the young Schumpeter travels to Switzerland, knocks on the door of the great Walrach, who's now quite old and unannounced and just says, uh, Schumpeter says, here I am. I am the person who sent you the book about uh, economic equilibrium. While the great Walras at the door and he says, oh, he said, Schumpeter was 26 at the time, I think. Walras looks at him and thinks this guy's very young and he says, thank you very much for sending me your father's book. It was magnificent. Schumpeter says, no, no, I wrote that book. Walras says, yes, it was a wonderful book, and congratulate your father. Anyway, Schumpeter goes back to Vienna, <laughs> totally pissed, and that was Schumpeter finished with equilibrium, and he spent the remaining decades of his life showing that the economy was always changing, always discovering new structures, new technologies, and was nowhere near equilibrium. It was a platonic ideal, this idea of equilibrium, but it was adopted for convenience. And when Schumpeter tried to say otherwise, at least in the English-speaking world, this was not a popular thing. And yet that's so strikingly at odds with history some other work that I'm doing, we go back and track the trajectory of social evolution since 1700, right? And in 1700, people forget how amazingly primitive our world was, right? Most people lived in dirt hut without any glass in the windows, maybe some animal hides or something like that. And we basically had, you know, only some of the old technologies, things like gravity for water systems, if we were lucky. And, you know, the Romans had better water systems than the big cities had in 1700. And, you know, the bit of water power, you know, we knew about siphons, simple machines like the wheel, you know, folk genetics like agriculture, but the scope was pretty small. And, you know, now today we can fool around with DNA using CRISPR. You know, we've harnessed quantum effects and things like hard drive heads and increasingly in chip design. And now, of course, quantum computing, things like general and special relativity are used in products like GPS. You know, it's been all in 320 years, utterly amazing. You know, it's kind of astounding that economists being right in the middle of all that somehow didn't notice it or didn't think it was of the essence. <laughs> I remember when I was a very young economist, I was sent to Nepal. It was 1975, and 
Westerners hadn't been there that much. They hadn't been allowed in. And it was essentially medieval, and this shocked me. It was summer in the Himalayas, obviously, in Kathmandu. It's quite some altitude and not that warm, and yet there wasn't glass and windows, as you mentioned. So for me, this was a sense of wonder. It was like going back to the year 1400 or so. Uh, I had similar experiences in the Middle East at the time, in Syria and Jordan. Now things have caught up a lot, obviously, both in Nepal and, and there. But yeah, we're, it's a marvel. What has happened is totally marvelous about technology, and I think it's created our world more than anything else. One thing I do want to say, in fairness to modern economics, it doesn't say there's no technology. It just says we're going to take a series of snapshots. We will look at the economy in equilibrium before the Bessemer process, say, Vump, we've got that snapshot, everything's static and so on. Bessemer comes along, the equilibrium shifts. So it's like watching a very slow-motion movie. Uh, is it wrong? I don't know, but it's not to my taste. What Schumpeter brought along was to say everything's in motion. It's all in motion. Things are changing. There's new things made out of the old and those new things come along, and there's no way where you could halt the process very uh, plausibly and say this is static. It might be static for three days, but as you know, in fast-moving markets, say, for oil products, <laughs> that may not even hold right there. It's an analytical convenience. And I support it as, you know, you've got to start somewhere, but... Um, it doesn't mirror reality when you really do dig into technology. So now we move from Schumpeter towards your own theories. I think you guys both share the view that every technology has to come from already existing components. Maybe talk a little bit about that and how that works. Yeah, it's an odd thing. I I was working on increasing returns, or what's now come to be called network effects, in the early 1980s, and I began to read a lot about technologies, and it kind of resurrected my engineering background. And I began to notice, I started to ask myself, you know, I looked at radar, I looked at oof, continuous wave radio. I was trained as an electrical engineer, but I looked at other technologies, the coming of penicillin as a therapeutic technology, things like that. And I began to notice that all of these technologies had something in common. They were all put together or constructed. Think of a radar set or a television set they were put together from components that already existed. And those components that already existed were also technologies, means to purposes. And so this enthralled me. Any technology, say, take a sophisticated one like the F-35 fighter jet, which is current, you'd find that it's put together from parts and assemblages and, and penages and that are uh, 
themselves technologies. And those technologies, sub-technologies, are put together from other parts and components and sub-assemblies that have their own purposes. So I began to realize that jet engines were not made of jet engines all the way down, but technologies were combinations of other sub-technologies and sub-assemblies that were combinations of further technologies all the way down, maybe six, seven, eight, nine levels. I found that very satisfying and really, really interesting. I began to research this idea that technologies were combinations. Uh, that's usually associated with Schumpeter, but Schumpeter wasn't really into technology. He was into what he called means of production. His uncle, I think, owned a factory. It was a guy called Robert Thurston in 1880 writing about steam engines that mentions that anything like a steam engine is a combination of other technologies that already exists. So it's an odd thing. If you think of a steam engine, you can imagine a big lumbering one. Uh, in those days, in the 1880s, it's a combination of boilers, uh, linkages, uh, at least one system with a piston, cooling equipment, uh, something that will regulate the speed at which it's turning over, etc., etc. It's a combination of many technologies, each of which has other subparts. So I found this fascinating. It's an idea that occurs and occurs. To me, this was an original insight, but I quickly discovered it goes way back. And I think that it's something that gets rediscovered every 20 years or so, that technologies are basically combinations. But this got me thinking about evolution. Let me pause here if you want to ask about that. Yeah, no, why don't you continue? And I guess the, one of the things I'd steer you towards is kind of evolution happening at multiple levels. Sure. Okay. So I began to realize that novel technologies are created out of parts that already exist. They have to be created from somewhere. It's a bit like saying uh, some new computer program, some new application, if it's written, say, in Python or Linux or something, is created from software parts that already exist. You put them together in some logical combination, they do something. And the kicker in this whole thing that nobody had seemed to point out before is that when you create a novel technology, it can be used later as well. So it becomes a building block for yet further technologies to be made up out of. So when we began to create things like a laser around about 1960, there wasn't much of a use envisaged for it. Now lasers are components and all kinds of things, all the way from computers to smartphones to GPS devices, etc., etc. Uh, they're indispensable. And those devices themselves are components. GPS is a component in a larger navigational system, say, on board a freighter, a ship, etc. So I began to realize, and this was the key breakthrough for me, that the whole connection 
of technology, sorry, the whole collection of technology, the whole shooting match, the whole numerous thingies we call technologies, built out in a way, built themselves, builds itself from itself. So think of it this way, there's a big collection of technologies, the year is whatever, 1800, and novel technologies, we have cog wheels, we have levers, we have pulleys, we have ropes, we have all kinds of stuff, and we can put all those together and make a steam engine. Now with a steam engine, new things become possible like steam locomotives. With a railway system, yet newer things uh, become possible. I realized that technology was more like a chemistry the collection that we call technology in general is more like a chemistry. There's many different types of molecules. There's many reactions possible, and occasionally you get new compounds formed, and we can toss those back in the chemical system, and those become new components for yet further technologies. It's as if you had this Lego set. It's a metaphor that isn't particularly perfect, but your Lego set consists of a few small yellow blocks that can, and there's a few green ones of different shape, and there's a few red ones. And you discover in the course of using these that certain combinations are useful, and they repeat. And you get tired of putting these together, and you say, I'm going to call this particular combination that keeps repeating. I'll call it some new name. I'll throw it in the oven. I'll fuse it together. I'll make multiple copies of this. And then you throw this new combination back in the Lego set. So the Lego set keeps expanding. Or if you like technology, the whole collection creates itself out of itself, uh, with an awful lot of human help, I should add. And so you can go from not having too many pieces, say in the Egyptian era, you know, two, three, four thousand years ago, to having many, many, many technologies now and considerably complicated ones. And I began to realize that's how technology evolves. Darwin's mechanism doesn't give you properly a theory of evolution for technology. If you want a theory of evolution, you're looking to say something like the technologies of today descend in some plausible way from the technologies of a thousand years ago and so on. Well, a lot of people had tried that as a theory of evolution for technology, they said that there might be small variations in different technologies, and every so often that would give you something startlingly new that could be useful. So this is very much Darwin applied to technology. It works to some degree. You can get different forms of bows, uh, historically different shapes, and maybe some of those were cooked up uh, by randomly or by luck. And then you suddenly discover you have something better. And then that becomes a new thing for use in further applications. 
but it left too many gaps, and I wasn't happy with that. I began to think, where did the jet engine come from around 1927 to 1936, both in Germany and in England? It wasn't from varying air piston engines, I can tell you. Similarly, about the same time, radar didn't come from varying radio circuits and magically getting something different. The jet engine works on a totally different principle than air piston engines. Radar works on a different principle from standard radio. They came out of looking at how particular needs could be satisfied. In the case of jet engine, how do you fly in thinner air, maybe at 35,000 feet instead of 4,000 feet? Uh, you can't get a piston engine to work that well. It doesn't breathe well at that altitude. So we needed something different. And Frank Whittle and Hans von Ohain invented pretty well simultaneously the jet engine. Similarly with radar, people in Britain and in other countries started to worry if somebody is menacing us with bombers in five years, this is around 1936, how can we detect fleets of bombers coming, say, across the channel? You could do that acoustically with people with very sharp hearing, listening in big concrete, with big concrete air trumpets, so to speak. Uh, but that wasn't good enough, and radar got invented. So. It's very much uh, technology creating its new parts and new pieces and adding those to the collection of building blocks for the creation in turn of yet further technologies. Yeah, I think I'd like to highlight, you know, one of the key distinctions between the evolution of technology and let's say biological or Darwinian evolution is that evolution of technology, while yes, there is some random variation. You look at the different manufacturers of cars, almost the variant, some in short term, sometimes seems almost random. But especially to these bigger examples, these transitions, they're driven by a human purpose or, you know, a human need, right? So when you focus on, I need an airplane that can fly above 35,000 feet. I know if it's a little faster, that would be even better, right? Then focusing on that need causes, you know, human ingenuity, engineering skills, et cetera, to look fairly far afield, and as you point out in the history of the jet engine, while it was for purposes of aerial flight radical, it used some technologies that already existed, such as compressors, etc. And I'm sure it used some existing metallurgy, though it may have had to invent a little bit along the way. So it's this concept of purpose or human need that molds the trajectory and makes it what it is, and of course makes it much more efficient in the time sense than Darwinian evolution, which you know takes billions of years to accomplish stuff. I completely agree with all you say, and I think you put it very succinctly. One thing I want to mention here um, in passing is the whole idea of invention. We typically think of a new technology, take radar, as being invented, or maybe the jet engine being invented. And that brings up romantic pictures of people in attics, you know, experimenting and being alone and maybe uh, semi-outcast from society, 
um, kind of like Isaac Newton fiddling around with um, alchemical apparatus and things like that. The genius inventor, um, so all that you said is absolutely on target, but I began to wonder exactly where these novel, radically novel technologies come from. They don't come from Darwinian variation. They come, as you said, from uh, felt needs. And I began to realize uh, there was really no theory of invention that, at least in all the research I did over 10 years, I couldn't find any that I found very satisfactory. Most of them said it's from thinking intensely and then a creative act happens. And I thought, yeah, sure. But that begs the question, what's uh, the creative act? I was struck uh, when I, I read Darwin's book, Backwards and Forwards, naturally. I realized Darwin was not that interested in evolution itself, the descent of species from previous versions of species. He felt that to be well established. He was interested in where new species came from. So it was the origin of species that interested him. And through all these little incremental changes that might happen, say snails on two sides of a cliff system in an island in uh, Hawaii, they might diverge a bit until after a long time they might not be able to interbreed and you'd have a new species. So it's all very gradual. I began to realize that for a theory of evolution of technology, I needed the theory of invention. And so I read and read and read, and I began to see very clearly that in all cases of invention I looked at, it was basically not a matter of genius, not a matter of being an outcast or whatever. It was always a matter of problem solving. And I began to realize it wasn't that mysterious. It is wonderful, and you can admire the ideas people come up with. And, you know, as a engineer slash mathematician, I've had my share of insights, uh, like anybody in science. So you can admire that. But I began to realize that it's past the awe and wonder it's not that mysterious or magical. I began to realize that invention in the cases I was looking at was a matter of having some problem or need. How can we detect enemy aircraft? You begin to look for some principle, maybe a team does, maybe some smart people do, maybe several teams, maybe several different countries this is happening. And you think that there might be this principle or that principle. In the case of radar, one principle stood out, and that is that people already knew that if you had high-frequency radio beams pointed at anything metallic, say, 20 miles away, even over the horizon, um, you'd get some reflection or distortion of those beams. And if you could pick up an echo of the distortion, you'd be able to say there is something there that's metal, likely an aircraft. So you begin to see some principle, but it's not that easy to make that real. And 
you think, well, how can I make this principle work? I could do it using these components that are sitting in my toolbox. However, that brings up sub-problems. And then you have to solve the sub-problems, which might have further sub-problems. So you're going back and forth. There's nothing much more mysterious than this. I began to realize uh, if you were sitting in Palo Alto, where I work, and you worked in the city, San Francisco, and normally you might drive in, but one day your car's in the shop getting repaired. How do you get to San Francisco? Now, principles would correspond to sort of thinking, well, maybe I could get my spouse to drop me off at the railway station, and then I can take Caltrain into the city. Maybe I could get up early and get a ride with a friend. On the other hand, that would be inconvenient for him. Maybe I could do this, maybe I could do that. So what you're looking for is an overall principle, and then you're looking for a concrete way to realize the principle, to make it real. And then you're saying, well, okay, but if my wife were to drop me at this station, uh, that would inconvenience her, and she'd have to get up a bit earlier. So you're trying to solve all these sub-problems. Essentially, invention, as far as I could see, worked like that. Sometimes you'd have a brilliant insight into a phenomenon. Oh, yeah, we could use X-rays in such and such a way, but how would we build a proper machine, a proper technology out of that to look at bones? I began to realize also, if you know, like another metaphor, that maybe you're standing in the Himalayas and maybe it's around 1950, 1960, and you're wondering how to climb Everest or K2. Say, oh, okay, we could go up the Western Call and we can make this approach. Some people have pioneered that, and we could then cross over to such and such a ridge and then go from there. So you're putting together an overall route, but each of those overall routes consists of sub-paths or sub-routes. Each of those has its own sub-problem. There might be ice falls, there might be rock falls, there might be uh, cliffs along the way that you have to wonder, how can I do this bit? So in all the cases of invention I was looking at, turned out that you're trying to solve a problem, finding a, an overarching idea or principle. We'll bounce high-frequency radio waves off something out there and pick up the distortions. But then how do I make that real with real components? And that's where combination comes in. And then that brings sub-problems. If you bounce high-frequency radio waves of something 20 miles away, they're going to be large and loud. How can you switch that off to hear the echo in time? The original waves will drown out any echo. So you've got all these sub-problems. And that's why it takes a lot of expertise, not so much genius, but familiarity. And going from there, uh, some people are very good at this sort of problem solving, a bit like doing Sudoku. 
I can do this if I could do that. I could do that if I could do the. F- <laughs> and you're looking at problems up and down the hierarchy. Absolutely. In fact, in my own business career, there were we did I think two actual inventions along the way, and one in particular, and it had just that attribute. Okay, we had this problem which nobody had ever solved. It was not unsolvable, we didn't think. So we'd go down this road. Well, that doesn't, oh, there's this problem we didn't realize. Shit, this broadcast data satellite network that we're going to use has a higher error rate. It doesn't have a higher error rate, but the error rate has a statistical characteristic that the vendor didn't tell us about, i.e. the errors were clustered, and that would screw up our applications. Then we had to figure out an error detection and correction scheme, and then we had to figure out how to do it in a cost-economic fashion, and then we had to you know, work it into a bunch of other stuff. So it was like, you know, okay, you go down this, you're stymied, you backtrack, you go up here. And then, of course, in the business case, it all had to work for the price we could afford to pay for that subsystem. So there was this outer constraint. If I can't do it for, it turned out, $200 a month per customer, it made no sense in the context we're doing it. So we threw out some solutions that would have worked, but they couldn't have done it for that price. So, you know, it's this trying this, trying that, backtracking, throwing it away, discovering problems no one even knew existed because they'd never tried to do this before. Very much like doing Sudoku. That's a perfect example. We have one of my favorite examples, and this will then lead to a, my other favorite topics, is the Wright brothers, right? Because in some degree, they were those cranks you were talking about, right? <laughs> Two guys, right? Neither of them college educated, though smart boys with lots of practical knowledge of how to do things, you know, worked more or less secretly for a number of years and solved one problem after the other, including ones people didn't even know existed, like, whoops, we have to be able to steer this airplane, not just get it off the ground, right? And they tried one thing, they tried another, and, you know, they eventually got it to work. I particularly like the Wright brothers as an example. You know, it's often said the Wright brothers invented uh, modern aircraft. Ah, Not quite. Uh, The whole idea of having a kite-like contraption was out there before the Wright brothers and people like Langley and others had been looking at this a decade or so before them. What hadn't been solved was the sub-problems that you're talking about. Nobody knew. Everybody said, okay, you could have fixed wings, you could have something that might resemble a fuselage. But number one, how do you control that? Secondly, how would you power that if you wanted to keep somebody up there for more than 30 seconds? Um, You could use an internal combustion engine, but they were heavy. So how would you do that with an aluminum engine? How would you, um, what sort of wing surfaces would work, what sort of propellers would work, and control systems. So what the Wright brothers did was they solved the key sub-problems. And they did it by, not so much by theory, but by trial and error. They were smart as a whip, as you said, minds like steel traps. They weren't afraid of experimenting. They were bicycle mechanics at heart. They did construct a lightweight engine to put on their machine and so on. So they solved the four or five sub-problems. And at least uh, once those sub-problems were solved, then you had a primitive aircraft around about 1903 and a few years after that. So I think they're a very good example I wouldn't say they're the inventors of the aircraft. They're the people who made it possible, though, more than anyone else. 
Yeah, and I'm going to jump in on one point because this is where I thought I wanted to transition to next. And so I love the Wright brothers as this transitionary epoch. The light motor was important and the internal combustion engine wasn't very old at that point, right? They'd been designed for tractors first and then cars, but cars were big and bulky. And, you know, whether it weighed an extra hundred pounds didn't matter that much, but it made all the difference in the world to get off the ground. But I'd like to focus more on the, you know, lift and control surfaces. Interestingly, there was very little science about this at the time. The Wright brothers did write to hundreds of people all around the world who've been trying various experiments and, you know, very crude stuff, surprisingly. And so getting man off the ground was actually done more or less old school tinkering uh, with relatively little insight from science. So I thought that this would be a great place to open it up to you to talk about the relationship between science and technology. I mean, again, we know, for instance, that the steam engine classically was developed before there was really any knowledge about heat engines. And in fact, it was the invention of the steam engine that focused the scientific community on understanding the dynamics of heat engines, which led us to the whole field of thermodynamics. So I'll open it up to you to talk about the intricate and sometimes surprising relationship between science and technology. It's a topic close to my heart because I'm sure like you, Jim, I, I absolutely adore science. I love science. At heart, I think I'm an engineer. <laughs> and uh, so I'm fascinated by this uh, connection between science and technology. What I would say is this, that I read a lot. Obviously, I read and read because it took me a dozen or so years to write this book or at least to do the research for it. And I began to see definitions of technology as, in fact, there was a very good engineer, um, late engineer called Truxell, who defined technology as, uh, he said, technology pure and simply is applied science. Now, I love technology, I love science, but that didn't ring true to me. In fact, a lot of people think Science comes first and then technology. Actually, it's the other way around. I began, as I got into this more and more deeply, and I hope your listeners are not offended, but I wanted to look at the truth. We've had technology, as you mentioned, for 11,000 years. In fact, probably for 300,000 years, if you take human language or fire maybe 80,000 years ago, the use of fire, things like that. We've had technology a long, long time as human beings. Science is relatively new. You can find Greek ideas, of course, but modern science dates roughly from the 1600s or so. And I don't quite know how I would want to define science, but just as a approximate uh, definition, I would say it's the close observation of nature and study of nature's phenomena, something like that. But if you look at that definition, what is this close observation done with? Turns out it's done with technologies, or we call them instruments in science. So when Galileo in January 1610, starts to, he gets the idea of a telescope, he makes his own, 
he goes up on his roof and he starts to look at Jupiter. Uh, partly for astrological purposes, Jupiter was moving uh, in retrograde at the time, and he wanted to see if he could measure that. He noticed four fixed stars behind Jupiter that nobody had seen because he had better magnification and he had good eyesight. And lo and behold, the following day, the stars had moved a little bit and it moved again the next day, and he came to this, oh my God, or holy shit moment. He's, oh my God, these things are revolving around Jupiter. They are moons. Oh my God. So with the coming of the telescope, we got a new era in astronomy. With the coming of the microscope a bit later, we got a new era in biology we could start to see bacteria, germs, and so on. With the coming of electromicroscopy, <laughs> if I get that right, we saw yet other things. With the coming of X-ray crystallography technology, using certain type of mathematics, called ladder technology as well, or method, these technologies brought the ability by the 1950s or so to look at the structures of organic molecules. In particular, uh, 1953 or so, uh, DNA. And so new sciences, I don't want to play down the amount of brilliance or insight of people like Crick and Watson, uh, Galileo and Newton, but science builds from observation and from thought and throw in genius, if you want, uh, deep insight. Uh, but science builds in no small way from its technologies. Now modern technologies, you mentioned uh, quantum computers, you mentioned uh, other technologies that... GPS that responded to special and general relativity. Technologies for sure are guided by science. They're designed using scientific principles, certainly in the last 100 to 150 years. Wasn't very true before that. Uh, so technologies, sophisticated ones, are built out of understanding phenomena that science has uncovered. But science has uncovered and understood those phenomena using technologies or instruments. So there's what I would call a lovely cycle, positive feedback cycle. Technologies give science new instruments and new methods. Science gives technology understanding of uh, new phenomena and technologies benefit. It goes in a circle. Uh, we can't say that one comes first, the other comes second. Uh, they are mutually reinforcing, and uh, they both uh, beautifully mutually supporting. Yeah, I think that's really important for people to understand, is that science is a creature of technology. I had this guy Michael Strevens on, who's a philosopher of science back in January, really interesting guy. And he always talked about the theoretical cohort, which he gave the famous example of verifying general relativity 
with the expedition to the South Atlantic. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he talks about all the things that went wrong with that and how dependent upon it was to how the telescopes were mounted and how the film worked or didn't work. And, and then the mathematics of error correction, of which there were some dubious games played and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> how the science is never as clean as you think it is. It's deeply and intimately involved with the technology necessary to make a reading, to gather the data or to do the experiment. Yeah, you don't want to look too closely into the sausage machine in some cases, yeah. Yeah, he opens that one up and he goes, well, you know, the guy got the right answer, but for the wrong reason, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out his instincts were right, though his science was a bit bogus, right? (laughs) Let's move on to another. We're getting short on time here, unfortunately. It's such an interesting conversation. Another really important part of your theory is that evolution or change happens at multiple levels simultaneously. And one example I think would be kind of fun to explore is the automobile. You know, at, at one level, yeah, a car is not much different than when I was 10 years old and first became obsessed with them, 1964, right? They look sort of similar. They do the same thing. They're not a hell of a lot faster than they were then, better gas mileage, et cetera. But back in those days, as a 10 or 11-year-old, I could actually work on the car. I remember changing the engine in a VW with my father. I remember replacing the generator regularly, you know, adjusting the points and changing the spark plugs and all this sort of stuff. You try to do that today, boy, you're in for a major disappointment, right? You open up the hood of a car today, you go, what the hell? Essentially, every single thing in the car has changed since 1964. And I was thinking about that. I go, they would change for their own reasons. You know, let's think about... You know, electric fuel injection it used to be the carburetor was the weak spot. You know, one of the idiot skills I developed when I was like 15 was how to rebuild a carburetor on one of my father's $100 piece of shit cars, right? The carburetor was always the weak link, right? And, you know, it was like a three-hour job to rebuild a carburetor on a, you know, a 65 Chevy that had 120,000 miles on it. But it was a pain in the ass, and that was kind of an archaic skill, and it was real expensive. If you had the store-bought mechanic doing it, we certainly couldn't afford that. And somewhere along the line, people realized that was a weak link, and it was also not so good for fuel economy. And so we came up with electronic fuel injection, which then became a subsystem. And then we got electric power steering, you know, came along, first electric assisted, and then eventually, you know, fully electronic steering. People bitch about that on lack of road feel and what have you, but frankly, it makes for more reliable, less error-prone, less catastrophic errors, et cetera. Anti-lock brakes, another good example. And yet, you know, the car sort of does the same thing, takes you to the grocery store, takes you to work and back. But then, this I was thinking about this as an example, But all those precursors that happened for competitive reasons, you know, call it Darwinian almost evolution, you know, somebody had the analog brake, people said, oh, shit, that's a good idea. We better get that or we're going to be left behind, right? This electronic power steering, people really, especially ladies, really like that. You don't need strong mechanical force anymore to turn the wheel. And all these things happen. Guess what this set up? It set up the necessary prerequisites now for the self-driving car. I realized that, that if all those other things hadn't happened for their own reasons, a self-driving car would not have been within reach. The first instance of any technology that I've ever seen is tends to be really crude. Imagine when cars came along, they looked a little more like steam engines in the 1870s or 1880s. And there's a guy, often they had steam boilers in those days. A guy had to shovel coal to heat up the steam engine, the, the driver, 
So that heated up the steam engine. And if I remember the French rightly, that is chauffeur is to heat something up. So he was the chauffeur. And we still use that. I love that. I did not know that. I love that. <laughs> so things are primitive early on. And overall, a car, as you point out, hasn't changed that much in roughly 100 years or 120 years of its use. Still is four wheels. It still has a steering wheel, which came along not right at the outset. Uh, it still has brakes and some form of accelerator and so on. What you're talking about, and I totally agree with, is that a technology from the outside may not look that different, but all the parts are changing. There might be a better part, a stronger part, or a more reliable one that's usable. So the old idea of carburetor is swapped out and a, a new, more reliable version is swapped in. Similarly, with all kinds of timing apparatus for uh, sparks and pistons, those are improved and swapped out. So there's an odd thing going on here. I'll use a zoological example. If you just stare at a car over 100 years, over all that period, you would see that on the outside it looks sleeker, it looks, now we have colors, it's not, I'm old enough to remember when nearly all cars were black, and you know, that running boards and so on, uh, only one color. So if you look at zebras or whatever, giraffes, they look much the same and probably don't change that much over eons. But with technologies, it may look the same. Four wheels, some sort of cabin to sit in, kind of driving cockpit, all that looks quite similar. But everything, all the parts and pieces are swapped, improved, much better materials. And something that I call structural deepening happens. You might have only one way to break, say in 1910, uh, maybe rods and pistons that are somehow attached um, to the wheels. Now there may be some sort of sophisticated electronic brake system. So where you just had one simple type of sub-technology for the brakes, now it's a system, and that system depends possibly on computers, uh, their safety, braking built in, etc., etc. So you get more parts, more sophisticated ones, if the standard inside subsystems don't operate that well. So the overall car looks fairly well the same, nicer looking these days, I think. But the insides, the innards of the car, the basic anatomy has got stronger, better, more interactive, and far more complicated. The structure itself complicates or deepens because you're trying to do more things in the same space. So it's a story of development. It's not unusual. And this is true of just about all technologies. Jet engines... In the time of Frank Whittle, there were something like 70 or 80 parts to a jet engine. When I called up uh, somebody at Boeing, I was told 
this was 2008 or so, how many parts would a modern jet engine have, say Pratt and Whitney? A guy got back to me two days later. So, oh, 22,000 parts. That's because all the innards are getting more sophisticated and so on. Uh, and that's, again, like many things in life, our understanding becomes more nuanced, more sophisticated, and if things don't work, we throw out old ideas and substitute new ones. And then somehow the market disciplines all that, right? The fact that I could, as a teenager, could easily wrench on a four-cylinder Volkswagen or a 300 cubic inch straight sex 1962 Chevy you know, that was considered to be of economic value at one point, right? So you didn't have to go pay the overpriced mechanic. But now nobody cares about that because the cars are more reliable and all the other kind of good things that you mentioned that came from that structural deepening. A lot of the roughness is now gone and the unreliability. One of the things that happens is that if some subsystem is used often. It might have, say, 54 parts to it. If it's used again and again and again over several models and years, it becomes modularized, becomes its own thing. And it's separately manufactured, and it may have a cover on it. It may not be accessible to amateur mechanics. <laughs> and it may only be accessible if you're trained by Mercedes or Audi or whoever it is. And you're properly trained. You have the proper tools. So as the lesson here is that as inner parts are used again and again in the same configuration, the tendency is that they become modules. Of course, the classic example is individual electronic components at one point, resistors, transistors, condensers, et cetera, capacitors. And then we had integrated circuits, right? And then we had, you know, full computers on a chip with input-output devices and everything else. And, you know, at each level of encapsulation, more and more and more goes into a black box, which is unfixable. I mean, you know, I can remember fixing transistor radios back in the day. Literally, you could you know, replace a transistor if it went bad. Try to do that on a computer chip. You can't, right? <laughs> I remember building a transistor radio. <laughs> no, no way these days. Absolutely no way I could do that. Or... And yet we get so much more value by this encapsulation. You can now buy a microprocessor with some I.O. stuff, you know, for about $3 for, a, you know, a small scale embedded computing system with surprising power. Yeah. So modularity is uh, a key property in these technologies. I want to mention, can I bring up a topic here uh, so that we don't miss it, if I may? Sure. Let's go ahead. We're getting close to time. So let's have one or at most two more topics. Okay. Well, I, I just have one topic on my list that I don't want to miss. And that is that, you know, so far in this whole discussion, I've been talking about individual technologies, say the jet engine or the computer, uh, or the whole collection of technologies, the hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of different individual technologies. But there's a layer in between I mentioned in passing, and that is that technologies tend to arrive in clusters or groups. In the book, I call these clusters domains. It'll become clear why. And as I began to look at the history of technology, I realized that 
different phenomena tend to be understood or captured or used at different times. So in the 1600s, we began to understand optical phenomena pretty well, the time of Newton, for example, telescopes, telescopes with mirrors, microscopes, etc. And so we had the optical technologies. Maybe 100, 150 years later, we began to get chemical technologies. It took a hundred or a couple of hundred years for those to come out. Uh, the kind of technologies that might make, gosh, <laughs> sodium carbonate, <laughs> if I recall. What's the reaction that does that? The uh, Solvay process. So industrial chemicals. Then by the 1840s, we're starting to understand electrical phenomena and we start to get electric motors and electrical equipment by the 1880s. What I want to emphasize is that there are clusters or bodies of technology that come along as we mine into and understand these clusters of phenomena. And so in the standard economic way of looking at things, we say, oh, yeah, the economy improves when a new production technology comes along. So when uh, the example I mentioned was when the Bessemer process came along, whenever that was, 1875 or so, then steelmaking gets cheaper and better and of better quality. Then another process comes along, uh, basic oxygen or whatever that is, and we do better. But I began to realize that something more subtle and at a middle layer was really happening. We get, in the history of technology, we get these clusters or groups of technology arriving over a period of decades. So take, for example, from about 1905 on through to 1960s or so, we had electronics arriving. And it was pretty primitive at first, and there was primitive radios, and eventually in the 1920s and 30s, primitive television, and maybe recording devices and microphones and things like that. But what I want to emphasize is that this was no single invention. This was a cluster of inventions using different electronic phenomena uh, to very specific purposes. And that's not that marvelous or deep. What is interesting, I think, is that the story of innovation in the economy isn't just we've got this technology A, an improvement, and that gives you A prime, better technology, A double prime, a third technology to do exactly the same thing. Yes, there's plenty of that goes on, but I think the big story in the economy is when these clusters or groups of technology come along and they sweep across the economy and they make a real difference. So let me take the whole railroad set of technologies. That comes along 1825, 1830, uh, on through, this is in Britain, on through maybe to 1860s and to 1900 as it builds out in different countries. That consists of knowing how to make steel, 
to lay down rails, how to do railway locomotives, how to signal from one station to another, so it would include wire-based telegraphy, telegraph systems in the 1840s, etc., etc., a large group of technologies. So that railroad cluster of technologies or domain or body of technologies is available. Available for what? For transporting goods or passengers. Before railways, if you wanted to get goods from, say, London to Bristol, it would take about two weeks. There'd be ox-drawn carriages lumbering over possibly hilly roads, rocky surfaces. It would get there, but it would take quite a long time. I remember reading The Economist magazine in the archives here at Stanford, and it was marveling. It said this was dated about 1839. It said a new economy is about to come along. The phrase they used was a new economy. And with railways, and pretty soon, within three, four years, we will be able to transport goods from London to Bristol in three and a half to four hours. Now, that turned out to be exactly on target. Of course, uh, lots of bumps along the way, no puns intended. But what I want to point out is that when these big bodies of technology come along, say, modern synthetic biology or digital technologies or computation, when these huge bodies of technology come along, they sit there. And businesses in the economy don't adopt them. You don't say, I'm adopting electronics. They encounter these bodies of technology. And they pick bits of what they want, and they combine their own functions with the new technology. So go back to about 1970 or so, businesses in that era, banks in particular, knew how to do accounting, they knew how to keep books on accounts, they knew how to do transactions, transfers, all kinds of things. Computers were coming along. And so they began to realize that they could track and add and subtract and do arithmetic on their accounts. They could store the information. They could feed in new information. And so modern computer-based banking was born as an encounter between commercial banks or consumer banks as well and the new computational devices. IBM mainframes and things like that. So I think that the bottom line in this story is that an awful lot of what's interesting about technology comes about when there's a new body of technology available and you can see whole industries walking around it and wondering what they should pick up. So digital technology is to fast forward to 2020 or so, we have blockchain, we have Bitcoin, if that ever settles down a bit, new um, types of currency systems. We have uh, sensors everywhere. We have big data as a result of all the sensors. 
a way of ways to handle that modern computing. And we have a marvelous telecommunication systems, largely using satellites and fiber optics. And so take any industry, uh, let's say health systems, and they're standing there and say, oh, we used to do this. Doctors would fill out forms. Forms would go to insurance companies. Insurance companies would send more paperwork back and so on. Now a lot of these things can be digitized and just have conversations between one mobile device or one device and another. And so suddenly we have this highly interactive, platform-based healthcare system. Maybe some images are taken here in Palo Alto at my local clinic. They're transported by fiber optics and satellites, say, to Mumbai. They're read there not just by human beings but by algorithms, and the word comes back, we suspect this, that, and the other anomaly in these MRI images you sent. All of this is automated. So my basic point here is that the economy keeps morphing and changing as industries adopt these new possibilities, each at their own rate, and combines what they do, doctoring maybe, or diagnosing with the possibilities in the new domain. So we've had this with canals, we had it with railways, we've had it with electronics. The story now, I think 2020, is that the digital technologies, that body of technologies has morphed and changed a great deal. And it's just sitting there and different companies and different industries at different rates are finding ways to use it, whether it's in China or whether it's here in the U.S. or here where I'm standing in Silicon Valley. That was a great one. I would have picked, I think, the same one from my list of topics. And I'm going to come back at you with one sub-component of the idea of technology domains. And this is in, from your section on how domains evolve. And this is a direct quote. Real advanced technologies, on-the-edge sophisticated technology, issues not from knowledge, but from something I will call deep craft. Ah. <laughs> and then this is really important, right? This is hugely important if you're actually trying to be in the business of technology, right? So why don't you tell us about your idea of deep craft? Yeah. Okay. Well, as I said, I'm trained as an engineer. I'm standing here literally in a park, uh, used to be called Xerox Park, which is, has been traditionally one of the players in advanced technology, uh, invented, if I recall, trying to think, the laser writer, the graphic user interface, the Ethernet. It's, there's a long list of things that got invented in this rather small building. And I began to notice, I've been here quite a long time as visiting researcher here, and I began to notice that engineers don't work by saying, I know the science, I can turn a crank, I can do the mathematics, I'll turn this out. It was much more subtle and sophisticated than that. People would walk down the hallways and say to somebody, colleague, uh, maybe at the other end of the building, 
you know, I'm looking for a three micron etching device. I think you were using that two years ago. Where would I lay hands on one? Or I'm thinking of doing whatever, Santa Fe Institute, I, a genetic algorithm on this. I remember doing that and I was able to phone <laughs> John Holland who had invented the genetic algorithm and say, John, are these the right parameters? And John said, no, 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 no. We use that for mathematical purposes. Let me tell you how, how the recipe really works. So I began to notice that real expertise in technology super advanced technology is not just science it's not just mathematics it's a matter of knowing what works knowing what doesn't work what's been tried in the past it's a matter of knowing who knows about all this and maybe befriending them and and getting advice from them it's very human and it resides in people's brains in the book, I call this deep craft. Other people pointed this out in the past. There's nothing new about this, by the way. If you go to the town of Cremona in Italy, the Stradivari family and the Amati families in the 1700s understood how to make violins. They understood which trees at which seasons should uh, be harvested. They understood how that wood should be dried and cured and what varnishes were needed and what thicknesses were appropriate. None of that's quite scientific. It's, I point out in the book, it's a bit closer to Cordon Bleu cooking in Paris. You need to know the basics. You need to know the grammar. You need to know what works. But above all, you need experience and you need to know what doesn't work and what to try if things go wrong. That's in, inside people's brains, and that's deep craft. And I began to realize that's why Silicon Valley can do tech, whether it's biotech or, or uh, nanotech or driverless cars, uh, autonomous technologies. And it's not as easily done, say, in the big island in Hawaii, uh, not because people lack education or, or smarts, but they don't have that build-up of experience. Yep, indeed, a hugely important point. In fact, our former colleague at Santa Fe Institute, Woody Powell, has done a lot of work on that, especially with respect to biotech. And you know, call them communities of practice or deep craft. It's a real thing, and people dealing with it in the real world need to take it into consideration. Well, we didn't quite get to everything in the book, but I think we hit most of the high points and we certainly gave people a good sense of what it's about. So, you know, if you're a venture capitalist, I know there's some of those who are out there and listen to us and some entrepreneurs or some people just live in this strangely technological world of ours. And you liked what you hear here, go get Brian's book, The Nature of Technology, What It Is and How It Evolves. Thank you so much, Jim. Great to talk to someone who knows a lot about technology. And that's you. Thank you very much. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.